come humbly. We bow before you. We are mindful at the beginning of this new venture and this new journey that we cannot do it in human strength. And we dare not do it in human strength. And so we come to you. We know that in and of ourselves that we can do nothing. Uh, and so we don't come, oh God, relying on whatever gifts we think we may possess or gifts we don't possess. But we come in Jesus' name. We come in the power of his spirit. We come humbly. Lord, we come knowing that we are unworthy of all your benefits to us. And so we plead only for mercy and for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may want to turn with me to Revelation 1. That's where we are. Revelation 1. I want to take you through these verses. God willing, my little helper, uh, Ricky, will um, bring up the slides for you. So you'll get, a, uh, get to follow on the screen. I can't see behind me so well. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to just believe in faith that everything's happening back there as it's meant to. Uh, but we will, but if, if it's not quite happening quite as it's meant to, um, we'll get there, I'm sure. Sid was suggesting I could try doing this myself, but I'm terrible at that. And so Sid's going to help me out. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. He has an evil spirit. It's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. He's gone to be the guest of sinners. He's a glutton, drunkard, and he's a friend of tax collectors. Why do you listen to him? This is a brilliant start to a sermon, isn't it? I've lost my notes. So I'm going to say to Ricky, could someone run over to Ricky for me, grab my notes off her, and bring them to me, and we're going to give up on technology. And I'm going to try and pick up exactly where I left off. Thank you very much, Linda. So he blasphemes. He blasphemes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He's worthy of death. Crucify him, they shouted. And they said, let his blood be upon us and our children. Then they spit on his face and they struck him with their fists. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and they mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews! They spit on him more and, and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. Others slapped him. Prophesy to us, who hit you? They said. And after they had mocked him and they took off his robe, they put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to crucify him. Mm. 
the original Superman series, I think it started back in the 80s or perhaps late 70s, you had Clark Kent. You remember him? A clumsy, kind of fragile, vulnerable kind of guy. Uh, and looking at him, you just wouldn't imagine that there was anything special or unique about him. He always missed the big story. He was never around, was he? Uh, but, but as the series develops, as the first one develops at least, you begin to realize that this vulnerable man who, who, who seems completely inept at helping anyone is in fact the invincible Superman. <laughs> and the hero who saves the day. And the reality is, friends, that when we encounter Jesus, and you've just heard me read some excerpts from his life. I mean, you take a look at that child in the manger. I mean, I mean, he looks completely helpless, doesn't he? Needing help. You look at his life, and he seems to be constantly at the, at the, the back of the queue. He does something good, and he's just accused of evil. Eventually, this pitiful character is humiliated as he's put on trial, executed in perhaps one of the most gruesome, ugliest forms of execution ever invented by man. And, and you look at this character and you wonder, could he be anything more? In one sense, when you look at his death, it seems fitting that such a pitiful character should have his life cut short to stop his suffering. And yet, I want to read some words to you that were read earlier by Jerry, and I want to just show you that this pitiful, humiliated man who was put to death by the Romans, handed over to them by his own people, is in fact, listen to this, just listen to the reality of who he is. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, burning in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Pitiful, humiliating, no. This is God. And I want you to understand that, friends, brothers, that we are looking at God Almighty, the one who designed you and manufactured you and keeps your body alive. Oh, he may have looked like a Clark Kent figure, vulnerable, pitiful, despised, but he was just a mask. And behind that carpenter, from Nazareth is Lord 
God Almighty. And that's what John sees, and I want to take you through that vision. Because he's not really some carpenter from an unknown or unpopular district of Galilee. He is, the Bible says. Listen to this, Revelation 19. He is, in fact, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There is no rank that is above the rank that he possesses as his right and because of who he is. Let me show you. I want, to, I want to, if you, if you would bear with me, I want to take you back through those verses. I read them at speed. I don't always speak at that speed, but I can do. But I want to break them up for you and just look at the depth and the wonder of what we have here. Uh, just something as a proviso. Uh, I'm sure you're aware. Please forgive me if I'm teaching you to suck eggs. But uh, as we look at Revelation, I'm sure you're aware it's coming to us in imagery. Uh, I certainly don't believe we're meant to take those literally uh, as those, those pictures are describing exact things that look like that. They're metaphors. Uh, they're images that speak of things greater than themselves. And so I think as we look at this, wh what we'll try and do together is try and decipher uh, some of that imagery uh, and try and see how it speaks of Jesus. So verse 10, on the Lord's day, that's today, it is to be distinguished from the Sabbath. I mean, I don't know what your own thinking is here, but we're not thinking of the Lord's day and the Sabbath as one and the same thing. We have a Sabbath, an Old Testament archaic practice which ceased when Jesus introduced the gospel. And we have the Lord's Day, a completely separate day, Sunday. Someone tell me why it's called the Lord's Day. Exactly, it's Jesus' day. If, can I say this to you? It has no relationship whatsoever to the Sabbath. Not even the same day. The Lord's Day is Jesus' unique Christian day because Christianity is a unique New Testament religion. More on that in the years ahead. But let me continue here. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. I think it just means that he was engaged with the Lord. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said to me, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. This is modern-day Turkey. There's more than seven churches there. There's at least ten. And John is selecting seven. Seven, so one of the things about Revelation, numbers are important. Seven is a number of perfection or completeness. John, it seems, is selecting seven churches because he wants to speak to the church. And seven somehow pictures a completed church. And when we consider that the Word of God was written for all time, we have to include ourselves here. So what I want to suggest straight away is that John is writing to you and me. He's writing to the church in Down Under. I guess when you're Down Under, you're no longer Down Under, are you? Where are you, Up Over or something? How do you, <laughs> how do you describe your geography? Because no, we are no longer Down Under. So uh, wherever we are, it descri it's describing us, 
is describing the church we've left back in North Wales. He's describing the church of every age. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. All of the New Testament is anchored in the old. We know that, don't we? Revelation in particular. To try and get our heads around some of the terminology or imagery, they all, almost all, anchor in the old. So, so we're in the old. If you're imagining lampstands, what are you thinking? Where would you find lampstands in Old Testament, in the Old Testament world? In the tabernacle. Thank you. Exactly. The tabernacle is a picture of the presence of God. Where does the presence of God dwell now? So we've moved on from tabernacles. It was the place where God's presence dwelt, where God met with his people. Where is the presence of God today? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians, I think it's on the screen for you. God's, we are, you yourselves are God's temple or tabernacle. The tabernacle, the temple replaced the tabernacle. So you yourself are God's tabernacle. And God's spirit lives in you. So I think John's point is simple, friends. He's writing to the church, the complete church, to the place where God's presence dwells. Verse 13, and among the lampstands, all the church was someone like a son of man. Another Old Testament pointer. Anyone, where do we hear that? Where do we read about one like a son of man in the old? Possibly, possibly, there's in somewhere else, and it begins with a D. Daniel particularly in Daniel, and it's, it's language straight from Daniel, and it's describing God in my vision at night. I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds. He approached the Ancient of Days. It's a presence of majesty, a heavenly being, God. And then we're told, remember how Jesus, what was, what was one of Jesus' favorites? Self-identification um, labels. How did he like referring to himself. He did it often. The son of man, the son of man. He was continually doing it. Mark 2, behold, the son of man. He put that together, and so we have the, the one who's walking around the lampstands is none other than Jesus. What's he wearing? He's wearing, what is, what's a robe? What characters in the Old Testament would wear such a robe, a robe right down to their feet. The priest. So here's Jesus within his temple, the church of Christ, operating in the function of priests. What's he doing? What's he doing? What would, let me, let me put it like this, what would the Old Testament priests be doing walking amongst the lampstands? What's he there for? Eventually, eventually he's gonna get to sacrifice, but at least when he's in the outer court where the lampstands are, let me, let me put it this way. What's he doing to the lampstands? He's lighting them. He's trimming them. He's changing the oil. 
He's ensuring that the lamps are doing what? Burning, thank you, Graham. Burning brightly. He's tending to them to ensure that they produce the maximum amount of light. Let me bring that into the New Testament then. So we have Jesus. He's walking amongst his church. He's functioning as a priest. He's wearing his garment. We are the light bearers. What's he doing to us? He's trimming us. Preening us. Oh, pruning us. Isn't it? Which, which is once pruning, once preening. Yeah, we used to have a parrot and I'm always confusing the two. <laughs> Thank you. Pruning us. He's ensuring that we bear light. In fact, look, this is what Jesus says of us. You know these words, Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. Have you ever considered, we consider Jesus, don't we, as the light of the world? John 8, I am the light of the world. But Jesus says, you, you are the light of the world. Listen to the rest of that. You are the light of the world. The city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do the people light the lamp and put it under the bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Christian, we are called to be light. Not to be some backwards little group of people that no one knows about. There is a fundamental issue with Rivergate Christian community if, I'm not suggesting there is one, but if nobody knows you're here. We're not some cult that meets in private to have a little gathering to do our little thing. We are to be light bearers. They must know we're here. They must feel our presence, experience our presence, know what we have. And friends, and I'm sure you know this, but what we have is not for ourselves. Yes, we found the best thing out there, but it's not for ourselves, but to share but to bear witness to, to be a light. You are, says Jesus, the light of the world. The reason the world is in such darkness, friends, perhaps we're not emitting our light well enough or sufficiently. It's only the light that you have that can transform a dark world as such as the one that we all live in. And hey, it's just as dark in the UK and everywhere in between as it is in Australia. Verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. We got, we got some... Uh, white-haired folks here, I can see, excuse me. Look, I don't know what it's like here, but back in the UK, if you've got white hair, Jerry, then, you know, you're classed as a coffin dodger. <laughs> a horrible term, isn't it? It's horrible, isn't it? You see, we despise age, don't we? It's terrible. I mean, who would say that from the front? 
That's, it. That's where you get, you see. You get these people from thousands of miles away. You haven't got a clue where you were getting, did you? <laughs> the Bible sees white hair in, in more of an Eastern way. How do the East, how do Eastern folks, Asians, look upon age? Reverence. Exactly. Respect, honor, and reverence. I look at a Jerry, and I may be thinking coffee and dodger, but, but they're looking at you, Jerry, and thinking, here's a man of dignity and wisdom. And when I speak to Jerry, I will speak to him in the, in the language that I speak as a Bengali. I would use different words when speaking, addressing Jerry to when I'm addressing Zach, for example. And I think the point here is that Jesus has white hair. Notice how, how white is it? It's as white as you can get. Here is the most dignified, awe-inspiring, respectful character we could ever encounter. His hair is as white as snow. Absolute dignity. His eyes are like blazing fire. I think that's a picture, friends, of, of his armor-piercing sight. It's consuming. It's like a blazing fire. It can penetrate and see and quench the darkest sight. I don't know if you ever thought about it like these friends. Look, we're all dressed glamorously. I mean, look at Bron. I mean, just like a model, right? <laughs> and we come down, we look, we're all wearing masks. Who here is not wearing a mask? Whether it's what we wear on our bodies or the smile. We ask each other, how are you doing? And we're all doing fine, aren't we? But we're not, really. Jesus' sight sees beyond the mask. It means he sees the sin. He sees when there's hypocrisy. He sees when we're just playing at Christianity. He said there's nothing he cannot see. Do you remember when Peter denied him three times? At what juncture in, in that evening did Peter come to repentance what did jesus do that triggered his repentance and remorse he looked at him i think there's a verse on the screen there he looked at peter there's something about jesus's gaze that when he looks at you we're an open book there's not a chapter there's not a verse there's not a punctuation mark that he cannot see Friends, we can't play at church with a Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire. May God give us grace to, to know that before him we are transparent. That there's nothing that can be hidden. You know Psalm 139, lovely words there, before the word is on my tongue, you know it completely. Here's the reality about Jesus that he knows you better than you know yourself and he knows what I think before I've thought the thought. Wow. But as a flip side, uh, it's, it's not all negative. It's not as though God only sees uh, what we've done wrong this week. When Hagar was thrown out by Sarah uh, and faced a desperate plight, certain death, God spoke to her 
And her response was, you're the God who sees me. Christian, look, I hardly know you. Hey, but I'm looking forward to getting to know you, most of you. But Jesus sees you. He saw you on your walk or your drive here this morning. He saw you last night. He saw you in the week. He sees you, which means he knows the pain. He knows uh, the challenges. He knows the misunderstandings, the troubles we face. You are the God who sees me. Verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I think he's speaking something of his holiness. I think we to imagine trying to gaze at the sun when it's unprotected in its brilliance. I know you guys get a lot of sun here, mostly, from what I understand. But this is a picture of facing the sun full on. It's impossible. Here's a character that, that we imagine wa- was one that we could slap. Do you realize? They slapped and struck God. But he's unapproachable. You cannot approach him, let alone touch him. This is the God we're dealing with. He's unapproachable. Such is his awesome power and his voice listen to this his voice was like the sound of rushing waters do you guys have waterfalls here yeah sometimes ever been to niagara anyone 757 gallons of water per second between the american and the canadian sides of the fall That's a lot of water. You try drinking that, okay? The sound is awesome, absolutely awesome. To stand anywhere near it, the sound is absolutely deafening, awe-inspiring. And I think the point here that is when Jesus speaks, look, do you have any teachers here? Or or parents, let me start with parents. Look, a lot of you have been parents, I'm sure. You're parents. You know what it's like? You speak to your child, and what's their response? They haven't heard you, have they? How many times do you have to say it? Here's the point. When Jesus speaks, he speaks with the power and the authority and the awe of 757,000 gallons of water per second and more. It's awe-inspiring. And when he speaks, you listen. You shut up and listen. Isaiah tells us that when he speaks, that Jesus' words are so effective that he never wastes a word. Not a word. That every word that he speaks, every word, Jesus has never spoken a word in all of eternity that has not fully achieved the purpose for which he spoke it. Wow. If I had a ministry like that, I could do my entire year's worth of sermons in five minutes. 
and sit there, and you're thinking, that would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Not a word that comes from his lips that doesn't accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword, I think it's similar imagery, speaking about the power of his word, speaking about something of what the word does. Uh, you know this. When the Bible is spoken, sometimes at least, it can hurt. And it's not because the preacher is trying to wound you. The pulpit is not a platform for the minister to get his vengeance on those members of his congregation who wound him up that week. Deb? <laughs> it's to speak the whole counsel of God, but in speaking the whole counsel of God, there are times, friends, it will hurt. But the pain, <laughs> it's horrible to say, the pain is good. The pain that the word of God inflicts it simultaneously heals and leaves us in a better condition thereafter. It hurts, but heals. In his right hand, 16a, he held seven stars, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So Jesus is holding these angels. Some have suggested, and I like this idea, that these angels of the churches are the pastors of the churches. I've always fancied myself as an angel. But I, I don't think it's actually that. It's probably just a reference to angelic beings generally. Here's a commentator, uh, Richardson, an Anglican. You haven't got anything against Anglicans here, have you? Here's an Anglican. Given the way that John refers to the angels in the rest of Revelation, that he probably here is referring to a spiritual being, angels that is. And look, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 1.14, uh, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So I think it's just a picture that Jesus is commanding legions of angels who, as he were, comfort and support and minister to us, his church. Amy Grant, do you ever listen to Amy Grant? Some lovely, I've only ever got one album of Amy Grant's, it's years old, but it's a song, and I've got the words up on the screen for you next. These amazing words referring to angelic experiences. A reckless car ran out of gas, it's American, before he ran my way, near misses all around me, accidents unknown, though I never see with human eyes the hands that lead me home, but I know that all around me, all day and through the night, when the enemy is closing in, I know sometimes they fight. If you're asking me what's protecting me, then you're gonna hear me say, he's got his angels watching over me, every move I make. You don't know it. Of course you don't know it. But your journey this morning to church was planned by Jesus. He sent his angelic hosts ahead of you. They scouted out the territory. They paved the way. They held back the demonic forces that stood in your way of getting to the people of God. They stopped that car colliding into yours. And they ensured that you could sit here this morning to be in fellowship and under Jesus' words. There are angelic beings. Hey, some people even see them. 
I have a friend who saw one. He talked with him, witnessed to him, and disappeared from sight. Sometimes we see them, whether or not we see them or not, that they're here with us. And the point is, is that Jesus holds these angelic legions in his hands and they're there to minister to us. And so the real Jesus, the real Jesus beyond, beyond the humiliation of the carpenter and the itinerant minister is this God who is an awesome being with great stature, a priestly person, great wisdom, great power and foresight and strength and awe. He is your God. And I want to leave you, friends, with our message this morning because this is the Jesus that we worship. I'm going to contrast him with the Jesus that is becoming more contemporary. Let me start here, verse 17. Notice John's response to Jesus. Notice his response. He sees him, verse 17. And says, that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Did John know Jesus? How long did he live with him for? At least, at least three years. He called him early in his ministry. He was the one that would lie on his chest. He, he hung out with him, he camped out with him, he ate with him. He was Pally, pally. In fact, of all the disciples, you have three in the ones of Matthew, Matthew, uh, Peter, Mar, uh, Peter, James, and John. Of the three, John, it seems, was the most intimate. If anyone knew Jesus, if anyone was pally, pally with Jesus, if anyone, if anyone was best buddy with Jesus, it was John. And so when John finally, after it's been at least 50, 60 years since he saw him, when John finally sees Jesus, you would expect, wouldn't you, that he would run up to him, give him a cuddle, embrace him, and tell him how fabulous it is to see him, yeah? But no. What does he do instead? What does John, who knew Jesus better than any other human, what does he do? He falls down as though dead. I think it tells us, friends, that the carpenter that John knew, John now seeing the real, unmasked Jesus, arrayed in his splendor and awe and majesty, is of a such high stature that even John Dare not go any nearer. Dare not address. Dare not stand before. I fell down at his feet as though dead. I want to suggest, friends, that one of the things this passage does is to tell us or remind us that we're not dealing with a carpenter from Nazareth. That's not your God, Christian. The Jesus of the Bible is not some pitied, to be pitied, despised, crucified victim of Roman or Jewish injustice. He is God. He is 
the Almighty. And he sits now in the position of power and the right response to him is a response of John. You see, I wonder if one of the reasons liberalism is sweeping through the church of Jesus Christ is that we have made Jesus so user-friendly, so cool and hip, such a pal and a buddy, that we don't fear him. We don't fear sleeping with our girlfriend because Jesus is cool. And he's so loving, he'd be cool with it, wouldn't he? We don't fear stealing from our employers or from our landlords. Because Jesus is so friendly. I mean, he, he understands. He's been there. He just forgive me, won't he? All I do, I just ask for forgiveness and everything's cool. Look, I don't fear living a hypocritical Christian life because Jesus is my mate and we get on really well and we do this Christianity thing in our own way and we're fine. I don't need to be at church every week. I don't need to read the Bible. Me and Jesus are buddies. No! Church, if I can start my ministry on one note, it is this note, friends, that he is God. He is awesome. He is to be revered, respected. If Jesus were to walk in this room right now, physically, nobody here would run to him. His presence would be so shocking, so searching, so overpowering, there wouldn't be a single person on their seats. We'd be on the floor. And our only words, if we manage to utter a word, would be, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want to encourage you, Christian, in your relationship with Jesus, to hold a healthy respect, fear of your God. Let's not forget this. Somehow the title, the Son of God, does Jesus an injustice. We somehow imagine he's something less. No, he is God. Nothing less. Not an iota less but fully, equally, absolutely, in his entirety, God. And that's God. He is due, firstly, my awe and fear and respect. And beyond that, notice that the verse continues beyond that. The next slide, please. Okay. And I fell down at his feet as though dead. But then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. And so here's the balance. Yeah, he is this awe-inspiring figure. Absolutely. There needs to be a healthy fear and respect of him. But as John follows proper court protocol, Jesus' response is to say, Jerry, 
commitment. And, and the initiation of that warmth and acceptance and love comes from Jesus as a response to our adoration and respect to who he is. It starts that way around, you see. He does invite us to come up. He does welcome us. He is full, John tells us, full of grace and truth. He does relate to us lovingly, warmly. But all the time, friends, there needs to be this balance between the respect of God and the warmth and the acceptance of Father. And even in, in our warmth and relationship with him, I mean, friends, look, I always shy away from terms like Jesus is my daddy. Goodness sake, can't you find a better term? Father is a term both of endearment and respect. And so he is both God and friend. And so, yes, we do respect him. But yes, he receives us and welcomes us as children. And don't forget that. I don't want you to leave this morning either just thinking, boy, he's just scary. No, he's full of grace and truth. And so bathe in that. Take that with you today. As you go out into the world this afternoon, Take that with you. He is my God and my Father. God bless you.